Well, welcome back for another edition of the Zeitcast. I am so pleased to welcome back my really, really good friend, Tony Caldwell, who's just uh, he's just an amazing person. Some of you got to hear the episode a few months ago, which is actually one of my very favorites we've recorded thus far, where we had Tony on to do a whole episode about religious trauma, depression, suicide, especially in context of the church. Uh, I, I, I feel like that's just one of the richest, um, kind of more spirit-led times that, we, that we've had. Uh, but Tony is, of course, a Jungian psychotherapist, and um, somebody that I, I trust with my life and my stuff, and my sense of it is like, you know, if you can help me, you can help anybody. <laughs> and Tony is certainly someone I trust in that way. He now lives in Nashville, Tennessee. That was one of the saddest things for me is I left Nashville just about the time he was settling in. Uh, but hey, uh, I'm glad that in this strange moment that we're in, that we're able to connect like this, Tony. So thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I wanted, there, there's so much uh, to, to talk about. And, uh, you know, I told, I told Tony before we started recording, I feel like a lot of what's happening, even with the podcast for, for me right now, is it's an excuse for me to have a good reason to talk to the people I feel like are just kind of good for my own heart, good for my own soul right now. But um, this just seems like a moment in which, I mean, we always need to be reflective about our own mental health and self-care and all these kinds of things. But boy, it sure seems to me that for all the stuff that dominates the news cycle uh, around COVID-19 and how it's changing our lives and economic anxiety and all that, this sure seems to be uh, maybe the uh, the most underplayed story right now is Surely everything that's happening and the fact that the world is shifting so rapidly is affecting our mental health more than we know and have even begun to kind of wrap our minds around. Right. Yeah, I keep hearing the word unprecedented used to describe this. And and I think we will look back and this will be a, a time in history that's reflected in you know, textbooks and things like that is the plague of 2020, you know, and uh, plagues are times where every, every system and structure is either broken down or at least questioned. And uh, there's a sense of our bumpers or our, uh, our guidelines, the things that sort of create structure and meaning uh, for us on a daily basis are broken down. And there's a sense of, uh, you know, I guess in psychological terms, the word would be our container, you know, so our container, our daily routine, our ways of connecting and relating, um, and the things that just give us a sense of, of what we usually call normalcy. Uh, when those are gone, there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of suffering and a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress. And, uh, during a time where everything is still shifting, it's not like, uh, we've reached the other shore yet where we can sort of recalibrate and start healing. Uh, we're still in it and this uh, situation is still evolving. So uh, trying to keep our bearings while, I mean, to use your, your metaphor, you know, while we're out at sea, if you will, um, it's just, it's an ongoing journey. So in a way, I think it's an opportunity to talk about what it's like to deal with whatever's going on in our inner world or in our outer world in real time. So not, 
you know, usually in therapy, we're, we're looking back or we're looking ahead, you know, and that's sort of, sort of where a lot of us are on a daily basis anyway. Uh, but this really gives us an opportunity to be in the moment in a very real way. So there's, I don't want to paint a smiley face on, on all of the suffering and death, but there, there are a lot, a lot of opportunities mixed in to rethink our lives and to rethink, you know, I know for me and my family, we're, we're thinking a lot about how we spend our time, how we spend our money. Um, you know, this extra time together is something that we've needed because we've all been really busy. Mm. And, uh, so I think there's a lot of opportunities to get back to the core of what really matters for a lot of us. Uh, one of the things that's really sad about that though, for me is, is that, um, the more on the margins we are, the less we're able to capitalize on those opportunities or the less they may even be there because uh, it's kind of a privileged position in a way to, to find the opportunities in this um, because someone who is not able to pay their rent and is looking at being evicted right now just really can't capitalize on those opportunities because there's too much like bottom rung gut level survival level needs, you know? So, yeah. So I think it's, it's another way that we, we also have to look at what um, in our society is not working. What's not working for the least of these, what's not working for those on the margins. It's just, a, it's a time to rethink everything. Um, especially for those of us um, that come from a faith background. I think it's, it's an opportunity to really look at the distance between um, who we are and who we say we are in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's, you know, I feel like it's still hard to discern um, probably for a lot of people, even what the greatest sort of stressors are. I mean, on the one hand, as you say, if you're in a position right now where you're being evicted and um, and a lot of people right now are just in, in, in absolute crisis mode. So you have all these kind of external factors and external anxieties, and especially economically, I think, um, a lot of that for people there, you know, are, those are, are new realities. And yet at the same time, I think for people who have a lot of time on their hands right now, or are now sort of, uh, stranded in close proximity, uh, with the people closest to them for hours upon end. It's also like, uh, it seems like for a lot of other people, there's this reckoning of whatever has been buried, whatever that you've been able to kind of distract yourself from. Now, everything's eliminated and almost everything, everything that existed before is now on 11. It's all exacerbated. And I think, you know, it, just depending on who you talk to right now, uh, it shifts in terms of which of those things is more stressful. Is it more like, the, the external uh, pressure of these new realities and especially economic anxiety or health anxieties, or, you know, for some of us, the, you know, maybe this sense that life has finally caught up with us. And a lot of the things that, you know, our schedule and our pace before we felt like we we're able to kind of outrun, we're, we don't, we're just not able to do that anymore. Right. Yeah. So the, the ability to stay distracted is, is, uh, is broken down for a lot of us. And, you know, for some of us, that's uh, putting us in the position to, to realize the reality of what a retreat really is. You know, a lot of times we, I know for me, 
for instance, a couple of years ago, I had this fantasy of what it would look like and feel like to go on a retreat by myself for a couple of days and just think and write and sort of decompress. And the reality was uh, about two or three hours into it, I felt loneliness and grief and all these other things come up. And I heard a, I heard a pastor preach on this one time and he said uh, that he had gone to a pastor's retreat and a few days in, he just couldn't take it. So at like two or three in the morning, he just packed up and headed home and he stopped at the gas station that was a few miles down the road. You know, it's just out in a rural area. And uh, so he stopped in, he got some snacks, you know, some coffee and gas and everything. And the guy behind the counter said, you must be coming from that uh, pastor's retreat. And he said, yeah, how'd you know? And he said, the guy behind the counter said, the only people that come through here at two or three in the morning are leaving that pastor's retreat. so yeah i think there is there's something about we romanticize me time but when we get it uh all our suffering comes up yeah uh, because that's what's there and it's uh you know I, i think of our sufferings like our anxiety and our stress and our worry and our fear and our traumas and all these things they're they're sort of like children inside of us in that if we abuse them, neglect them, tell them to just be quiet, to get over it, stuff it, buck up, man up, whatever. Uh, if we ignore, humiliate, shame, um, if we do anything less than relate to them in a loving way, they're going to act out. You know, uh, they're not going to be healthy. And so uh, it's an opportunity for us to learn uh, basic things that we sort of get out of get out of practice with even if we ever learned it in the first place which are how to self-parent and how to self-soothe and most of us don't do that very well Mm. Uh, we haven't been taught that and usually the people who taught us didn't know how to do that and even parents who uh, did that well for us um, that doesn't necessarily mean that we downloaded that and are able to 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 perpetuate what they gave us from inside, you know, to do that internally. So it's, uh, there's so many opportunities there for that. And again, I don't want to sound too excited during such a a bleak time, but I really do get, um, and I'm pretty much a realist and, and even have a bias towards the negative sometimes when I'm not in a good space emotionally, but, but I really am excited about all the opportunities for growth, um, you know, because, you know, especially on a societal level, the only time that there's real change is when lots of individuals change simultaneously. And I think this is an opportunity for that to happen. I mean, I also know that that happened post 9-11, you know, for a few days, there was just peace and brotherhood and this calm and this sense of all of us collectively having some connection to what really matters. And of course, I mean, look at, I mean, just look at our political climate now and you can see how far we've fallen from that place that we were shocked into through tragedy. And, and it's sad that it takes a tragedy, whether it's nine 11 or this virus to shock us into that reality. But, um, the fact is we, uh, we do need to be shocked into, uh, reality sometimes. And so I'm, I'm definitely not saying this virus is for that purpose or any of that kind of crazy stuff, but I'm saying we can use it as an opportunity to, uh, sort of plumb our depths and to relate to the world from a deeper place. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I have so many questions 
Tony, just from that, I mean, uh, everything from, I, I definitely want to ask a bit in terms of try how to figure out how to self-soothe or self-parent in a time like this on the fly if you don't necessarily have those mm-hmm. resources to be one. But because it's the last thing you said and it's something I'm thinking about so much right now, and I think like, I think I can say this without any kind of a bite in any particular direction. I, you know, just in the last few weeks, and I'm navigating this with people I love just like anybody else. Um, politically, with things being as polarized as they are, and so we started off, you know, with a lot. Of, I mean, that I think that's just objectively true that there's uh, there are a lot of um, a lot of dispute on social media right out of the gate about how seriously take COVID-19 uh, based on how one votes or where one's inclined uh, politically, you know, that seemed to inform all that. Now we've seen some of that kind of shifting and changing, but it's like, I, I've noticed for the first time now, because it's very easy, no matter how much you try to withdraw from it, that that sort of left, right uh, kind of political grid that we have I mean, it's just so kind of entrenched here. And it's it's just taken me kind of a bit to see, especially these last few weeks. At this point, I really feel like no matter where people are politically, no matter how they might kind of try to diagnose this, I know now we're already having these really robust conversations about when should we kind of reopen in terms of economic concerns versus people's physical well-being or whatever. But I really do feel like at this point, no matter where people are across the board, everybody's in touch with anxiety on some level, either for themselves or uh, people they love. No one's kind of unmoved by it. And even people who I think are pretty entrenched with political ideas, kind of one way or the other, are, I think, feeling um, the, the, the instability of, of, of not kind of having a central source that everybody trusts and, uh, you know, and, and family members not necessarily being on the same page. I just wonder if in some way you could speak to that of what it's like to experience something traumatic and difficult when we're coming at this as kind of a people collectively as a nation where we've been maybe more polarized than 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 ever in in recent times and how we process that psychologically right oh gosh so responding to this in a way that doesn't sound too biased might be difficult for me because i do have some some feelings and and uh sort of a read on it that is of my own. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of chaos in the personality of our president and the way that he uh, relates to the world. And I think it's one of those things where human nature is to, to, uh, you know, human nature basically plays out in a way where, if that person that's unstable is on our team, we'll excuse it. And if he's not, we'll really zero in on it, you know? And I think that's part of the polarization is that whichever sides in leadership doesn't own and hold to account the, uh, the things that their chosen person might do or say, you know? And, uh, so, you know, I've never been a political person uh, until the past few years, and then I just felt it was it was my duty as a person of faith and as a human to speak up, especially about uh, racist and xenophobic statements and policies and uh, all the dog whistles and things that have been happening in our politics and uh, not denouncing white supremacists 
uh, thoroughly enough and uh, things like that. And a lot of the collusion that I feel like has happened between, uh, you know, large groups of Christians and a lot of really dark things that have been playing out politically. And, you know, I, f- I found myself really angry for a long time and uh, I, I still feel it periodically, but, you know, I, I feel like Jesus doesn't let us off the hook with just being stuck in anger. I think we always have to end up moving towards either love or grief or heart, mm. heartbreak, you know, that that seems to be the, the pattern of actually following Jesus and not just uh, espousing Jesus. They were, they were always on that some kind of spectrum between love and heartbreak and sort of holding the tension of those at the same time. And really, my heart's just been breaking over how blind we can be. I mean, when people uh, compare this presidency to Hitler and all that, I mean, I kind of get it. But what I really get coming from a psychological perspective is how our current culture and the culture during the time of the Nazis is similar in a lot of ways as far as our collective mindsets and our divisions and our blind spots and our sort of Pharaoh-like hard-heartedness and hard-headedness and unwillingness to just admit when things are wrong and call them wrong, even if they're coming from someone that's on our side. Um, And that's just really dangerous. You know, M. Scott Peck said the, you know, he wrote a book about evil and he said uh, that really the only ingredient we need to participate in evil is a refusal to um, to acknowledge and tell the truth. Yes. Is that people of the lie? It is. Yeah. Oh, that is very profound to me. I love that you brought that up. Yeah. It's like that, that, that this idea that like that's where <laughs> real evil begins. It's like with the kind of intentional decision, one thing to tell a lie, but it's another thing like when you decide to believe something knowingly, that's not true. And you decide to believe it anyway yourself. Right. Yeah. And so things like the group think that happens where, when you only listen to one news media source. Uh, and I think a recent example would be calling this thing a hoax until we have thousands of people dead. And then there's still some really far right groups that are threatening the doctor in the white house, you know, and, um, just the insanity of thinking everything's a conspiracy and uh, no one trusts anyone in the whole fake news thing. And I mean, I get it. There's a lot of false information. There's a lot of bias, uh, but we can also um, see in this that we really, we really can't handle freedom. I mean, look what we do with it, you know? And I mean, there's a lot of sermons about free will and there's a lot of stuff about individual sin, but I think this, I think this is a good time to read the prophets because they always point us towards collective sin, what we're doing as groups, you know, and that's, uh, I mean, I just feel like that's exactly where we are. We're, we're in a time where if we really look at what it means to, uh, to sin as part of a collective, you know, to miss the mark or to harm others or to, um, be, uh, really insular in some ways. I mean, even down to uh, hoarding things from the grocery store, you know, what, what does it mean to be a person of faith who's hoarding at the grocery store? Where's the faith? Where's the trust? Where is the God's in control when we're stacking our cart full of toilet paper, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's really a time to think about the, the difference between who we are and who we say we are. And that's always, um, 
a call to humility and unfortunately sometimes to humiliation. But uh, I think I don't think there could be a better time to do that as individuals, because that's really the only way that we can do that as a collective is to individually and simultaneously, um, again, go inward and take account. You know, this can be a time of reckoning. I think any day can be a time of reckoning. Um, and um, and I think it's important that we that we do that on a daily ba- basis. Um, and I, that's one of the another area of heartbreak for me is that we we've for so long now, and I think it's part of why we see such a um, a mess with uh, Christianity on the world stage right now is that we have taken uh, our faith to be um, based on belief and belonging instead of a set of daily practices. Yeah. And daily practices can bring us back to that place that most of us have neglected and and is now brewing up because we have all this downtime, you know, and um, I think it's a, it's a good time to return to daily practices and daily prayer or daily meditation or daily reading and things that uh, recenter us and also uh, don't let us wiggle out of our, really our responsibility to again, tend to our inner world uh, because we're not even going to fully be who we really are in the world. Anyway, if we don't tend to the inner world, uh, we're just going to be reactive and um, really uh, beholden to whatever group we belong to. And we're going to sacrifice our faith, uh, you know, on some level. And I'm not talking about individualism, but when we uh, when we sell out our individuality, we'll sell out our faith uh, if it means that if it means that we if being true to ourself and our faith means that we disagree with the collective that we belong to, yeah. uh, we're, most of the time we're going to choose group affiliation because that's where we find our safety. And so that's human nature. And I mean, that's even on the animal level, it makes sense. You know, the, the worst thing that can happen to pretty much any mammal is to find yourself outside of the pride or the pack or the tribe or the collective and that's that's a real fear, and so there's a real temptation. But it, it also is a form of idolatry in that we, uh, what we really lean on and uh, turn to and trust is group affiliation at all cost. And when that happens politically and um, religiously at the same time, and those two things collude and become one thing. I mean, I, if you just look around, I think that's what, where we are right now. Hmm. I want to ask you more about what some of those practices are or trying to cultivate some of those individual practices that we kind of need. Mm-hmm. But it strikes me, Tony, as um, just in the scene that you're painting, I mean, I guess in some ways it does feel like, I guess any, I know every time it's volatile and dangerous in a way, but it does feel like such a, a tenuous time. It was such a tenuous time already be going through this. I'm curious what your sense is. And I don't even know how one would kind of gauge or quantify this, but um, of how you kind of feel like we as a people, especially in America, like, are you like this? Are you hopeful right now that kind of having this pause button that's sort of been forced on us or whatever is going to um, bring sweeping change and how we relate to each other and maybe, 
how we how we think politically and uh, in terms of some of the unhealthy dynamics you described, or do you think that the crisis only causes people to more to become more entrenched and it gets worse before it gets better? Like, what's your sense of kind of like what this does to us in the midst of a moment like that already, even before this started? Yeah. So I th- I think it's all of the above. Uh, for instance, if uh, if we're on lockdown for another month, let's say through the end of April, um, then there could be a healing effect of that. If that goes on through September, we're going to see some crime and some fear and some looting and some things like all the things that um, a lot of us are afraid of it will eventually happen. You know, it's uh, I'm thinking of it like uh, almost like medication. If you know, a medicinal dose is medicinal, but too much becomes toxic. You know, and so too much quarantine will have some social consequences when people are desperate. Uh, they do really terrible things uh, and survival skills kick in and, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I do think that we could and, and probably will see some of that at some point. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, the opportunities are there if we seize them to to we're going to suffer either way. It's the, just the the question is whether we're going to suffer and heal and grow or just suffer. Yeah. I mean, those are really our two choices. Um, and, you know, I've seen a lot of beautiful things like people getting outside of themselves and giving to others. And I've seen people uh, that are always on their phones, less on their phones and more outside walking, you know, and things like that. So there are all those opportunities. Um, I, I think there, there has to be a dedication though. It has to become a lifestyle. It can't just be, you know, like I, I think there's already some positive change, um, that's happening, but it can't be, it's just circumstantial right now. It can't be sustained for the long term unless we make this new knowledge and this new way of thinking and feeling into a lifestyle and a daily practice. Yeah. So unless we're, unless we're intentional and this comes with changing any sort of habit or addiction, unless we're intentional about creating a new chapter or a new replacement or the new normal or, or to, you know, quote Tillich to be the new being in some way, um, it's, it's not going to happen without intention and dedication. It, it would just, we'll always go back to default mode, especially under stress, uh, especially when we're underwhelmed. You know, a lot of us are going to return to maybe jobs or situations that aren't really life giving for us. And we'll go right back into the ways we cope with that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, again, there's an opportunity to uh, think about what life that really is life might look like on the other side of this. And I've already heard of people talking about returning to a different type of career path or uh, maybe just rethinking the ways that they relate uh, in general to the world. Or there's a lot of people right now at home struggling with the fact that either they or their children or maybe both parties don't really like each other all that much when they spend as much time together. You know, and that's uh, that's real. A lot of people don't want to admit that, but man, I hear it every day, yeah. and it's uh, it's real. You know, when when you have a bored teenager in the house and you're worried about money and um, 
when you'll get back to work and all, you know, when all of those forces collide and everyone's anxious, but maybe not talking about, about that, uh, we can all become pretty reactive and have a, a pretty intense household, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's also an opportunity to face that and heal that. If we avoid that, you know, nothing will be done, but you're not, so, you know, Silas, uh, he's about to be 13. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I'm realizing like I, I put a lot of time and intention into trying to be an adequate parent for him. And, and I think technically I pull it off, you know, uh, most of the time. But in this in this downtime, just to be able to have a little more time together where I'm at work less and all of that, I've realized the the qualitative aspect of um, our relationship needs some work, you know, mm. so where, uh, yeah, I'm present physically. Yeah. I ask the questions. Yes. I engage. Yes. I go to all the school stuff and the after school stuff and, and all of that. But when I'm overworked or overtired or overstressed or overcommitted, the, the quality of my attention is just, not what it could be, mm. you know? And so as he's turning 13 this month, I'm, I, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this is the opportunity to, re, to recalibrate for me is to think forward to, okay, between now and 18, I'm either going to go into default mode after this quarantine is over and do the same thing and look back with regret, or I'm going to get this right for the next five years or get it better, you know? And so that's one of the opportunities for me. Um, also, you know, in, in marriage or in any relationship when we're really busy and have a lot going on and, you know, f in, in our marriage, like a lot of marriages, it can almost feel like a business partnership sometimes when we're really busy, like who's picking up our son today and who's doing this and who's covering that. And we're, we're you know, trying to figure out how to share the, the workload and the commitments and that sort of thing. And uh, to spend time actually sort of looking one another in the eyes while we're talking and to um, speak from that, that deeper place and to just, you know, have the time and the space to actually connect as humans and not just as uh, two people who are committed to completing the, the shared task, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. So, uh, I've heard people joking that there'll be a lot of Christmas babies, you know, that quarantine babies, that sort of thing. And and so I get that on, on that level of, of intimacy. But I guess what I'm speaking to is actual human connection. And the things the things that bring people into marital therapy aren't always, you know, and, and I think it gets kind of sensationalized. You know, people say well, it's always about money and sex. And I mean, that's always a factor. Uh but man, there's so much more that brings people into marital therapy. And this is such a great time to, to really connect in all the ways that create enough love um, to that, to hold and withstand the tensions around things like money and sex. You know, there has to be a, there has to be a, a container built that where there has to be enough love to handle, um, the big issues when they flare up. And so again, I think it's, it's an opportunity to do that maintenance and to do that, uh, connection. And really a lot of us avoid connecting over painful things, but if we have painful things arising, or if there's all this circumstantial stress, like 
whether it's financial or, um, you know, just the stress of everyone being cooped up and having cabin fever, that sort of thing. Uh, whatever it is, if we could bond over our shared suffering within yeah. our household, um, man, that's that's how you build the container of love big enough to handle the things that are gonna gonna come in the future. You know, in in all of our lives, there's there's gonna be other storms after this one, um, other breakdowns and other big hits and changes and traumas. And uh, I think right now getting in practice and, and, and getting some baseline of what it looks like to be in that together and not sort of going through it as parallel people, but as a unit uh, and fi- finding language, especially for us guys, it's an opportunity to find language to talk about what's going on inside of us or to ask others around us um, like spouses, girlfriends, children, whatever it might be, um, how they're feeling and to help them find their language and that to build that shared language where we can actually have dialogue about inner experience, because most of us just don't do that, mm. you know, and if we're not, if we're not in communication about, our inner experience with one another. I mean, I don't know exactly what it is we're doing, you know? I'm wondering in that spirit, Tony, and I want to ask this in terms of stuff that's surfacing in people right now through this time on an individual level. Like when you talk about early on about how so many of us don't have the resources to sort of self-soothe or self-parent, but specifically, because I feel like this is so real for so many people right now. So you're, you're in your house and now you find yourself on lockdown with the people you're ostensibly closest to and issues are coming out that it may have been old stuff that's been buried, things that's never been dealt with. Maybe new issues are arising just because the sheer amount of proximity for this, just, just over this amount of time. I'm wondering what you'd say for people who, are coming to see some things and feel some things in that way, but who are just freaked out, uh, can't afford a, a, a therapist right now, can't afford to like get help, and now find these like relational dynamics that are coming up that are super frustrating and dealing with feelings of frustra- feelings that are just um, that are that are full of frustration and anger and all that, but kind of feel like they don't know where to begin in terms of how to address that constructively, what, what would you say to people who are sensing that right now? Yeah. So what, what community looks like and feels like right now is really different. Um, and so that, that reaching out to another person would have to happen through some kind of digital means. And that, that, that can feel pretty disembodied, but it, uh, it also can feel pretty connected in a, in a different kind of way. I, I think sometimes we, uh, and I'm finding this through doing more and more sessions online, uh, is that sometimes we're less in persona uh, when we can't look at each other. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that sometimes we're less playing the game of worrying about how we're being perceived and we're just more honest uh, when we're, we don't feel eyeballs on us. You know, so, um, you know, all kinds of things come to mind. I'm thinking about, um, you know, one, one of the downfalls of communicating about what you're feeling through some kind of digital means is that it can be immortalized and it can be shared. Yeah. You know, so whatever's in writing, um, uh, is just sort of there permanently, 
on the device of wherever you sent it, you know, and uh, things like video uh, or phone calls, those can be overheard. Uh, people can gossip. All these things happen. So, you know, the, the one of the questions that comes up in response to your question is, uh, who's safe enough to talk to? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes uh, there's no answer to that question. There's not a person that we actually trust to talk to. I mean, I think that's why um, one of the reasons why people come to therapists, it's not that the therapist has specialized training. It's that the therapist doesn't have a dog in the race. Yeah. You know, if you call, you know, let's say if you're 30 and you call your 55 year old mom uh, and vent about your marriage, uh, that's going to affect how she perceives your spouse. Right. And maybe uh, she's going to call you five times every day worrying and that sort of thing where, you know, people who sort of have a dog in the race or who are personally affected uh, might make you regret opening up to them. Um, it's if, especially if it taps into their own anxiety or codependence or desire to caretake or just their own fear or whatever it might be. Um, and so, yeah, the big question is who's safe. And for a lot of us, there's no answer to that question. And, uh, so usually in that situation, turning to a professional is the, be is the best way to navigate that. Um, and so right now that would look like finding a therapist online. Uh, I would also say it's also a perfect time to, uh, just let what happens happens and well, let what happens happen and, and trust the process. For example, if you feel like you really need to have a come apart and you really need to go sort of scream into your pillow and cry for an hour, maybe do it. You know, maybe, maybe that desire for, and that need for a release needs to be honored instead of ignored. You know, there's some things you just can't talk out. Sometimes it's embodied. You need to work it out in your body. You know, sometimes, uh, sometimes our body's the first responder to stress, you know, and it shows up in, uh, panic attacks and tight jaws and tight necks and all the ways that stress and worry and trauma and fear show up for us physically. So, you know, tending to the body, tending to the mind and tending to the spirit. Uh, I think are, are three ways to navigate that. Cause again, you know, not all of us can, can do this. And especially when we have pre-existing conditions, plus the circumstantial stuff going on simultaneously. So this is not a test of whether you're strong enough or good enough or any of that, but to the point that you can, and maybe even testing your growing edge a little bit, try taking care of yourself as if your life depended on it, mm. <laughs> you know? So Yes. I, the, the word self-care has been used uh, in a way that almost looks like some kind of fluffy, frou-frou kind of extravagant optional thing. But um, when, when I talk about self-care, I'm really talking about um, being, being a steward of your own mind, your own body and your own spirit, you know? And so caretaking, I think maybe is a better word. Uh, what kind of what kind of caretaker or steward are you to your soul and to your mind and to your heart, uh, your emotions, you know, and a lot of us aren't doing that very well. And sometimes doing that well just means being with what's there. 
you know, for example, if your child is anxious about what's going on, maybe saying, yeah, me too, because they can already sense it, you know, and just being honest and maybe even, you know, I know we, uh, we don't watch, uh, news media at home. Um, but during this, we've turned it on a few times just to kind of get updates on what's going on. And there was a moment a couple of days ago where, you know, it, it, that seeing the, the numbers of those who have died and, and the projections of who might die, um, really impacted my son and he was tearful and my wife was tearful and I was, uh, you know, sort of fighting my tendency or my programming to be the rational one in the house and sort of detach from the emotion instead of just responding, you know, like there's the fear of, oh, well, if I collude with that, it'll feed it, you know, but really avoiding it uh, is, is a form of abandonment in a way to, mm. to say, you know, oh, well, good luck with those feelings. I'm not going to participate in that is, is really not, um, being a very good steward, <laughs> you know? Uh, so uh, the best response, um, even if it's after the fact is to come back and acknowledge that I, I didn't really show up fully, uh, for their suffering and to try to make that right, you know? And so to say, yeah, you know, part of my avoiding that's the fact that I, I feel really stressed too. And, uh, I really want to be, you know, sort of a, a stabilizing force when you're sad. Um, but I also need to make sure I'm connecting with you while I'm not doing that, not sort of compartmentalizing you or quarantining you relationally or emotionally when you show that you're hurting or that you're afraid, you know? So I think there's just so many opportunities to, uh, to just practice our growing edges and there's no failure there. It's not like, anyone was a bad person or anyone necessarily failed. It's just an opportunity to say, Hey, this could be better. And let's just, you know, do the work it takes to make it better. Um, I had, I had a friend, uh, he, he's a musician, Victor Wooten. Uh, he, uh, I had a conversation with him, uh, I don't know, three or four months ago. And he talked about how he, uh, he has a practice of immediately forgiving himself for anything. Uh, that he might do wrong. So mm. if someone says, Hey, you know, you, you hurt my feelings or you did something that was kind of not, you weren't being very aware or something like that, that he'll, he'll go into inquiry. He'll ask, he'll want to know more. He'll want to research what they experienced and what his role was in it. And so that he can take notes and make sure to do better in the future. And so he objectively looks at it in that way. He makes amends as best he can but then he automatically immediately forgives himself and sees it as a teaching moment for that person to be his teacher and not like some identity or some kind of, you know, hair shirt to put on and wear around. Like, um, it's who he is instead of what happened, you know? And so, yeah, there's so many, man, I know I, I'm using the word opportunity a lot, but there's just, I, again, I'm, I, we're either going to just suffer through this or we're going to suffer, heal and grow through this. And there's just endless opportunities on a daily basis to do that. I think just bringing conscious awareness to what we're doing and saying, like if we're zoning out on CNN or Fox news or something for several hours a day, we're, we're feeding uh, our inner world, you know, anything that we ingest impregnates our consciousness, you know? And so it's going, whatever, 
whatever we let in, it's going to multiply. So if we are watching a lot of stress and worry and fear, um, guess what? We're probably going to feel a lot of stress, worry, and fear. And uh, so I think keeping a keeping tabs on how much uh, information we're letting in, and uh, that's not to be blissfully unaware or anything like that. But, you know, sometimes a stress response can, you know, one of the number one stress responses or addictions is zoning out. Mm. And if we're zoning out on uh, things that are um, affecting us emotionally, then there's going to be consequences to that. So, again, how can I be a good steward of my mind? Maybe limit that to 15 minutes at a time, three times a day instead of sitting there um, watching and realizing four hours have passed. You know, so yeah, so not externalizing too much, but again, going inward, connecting with the people that are in front of us and uh, just trying to get back to basics. Mm. Yeah. That's so good, Tony. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm wondering on kind of an individual level, I mean, you talk about, and I think that's so important right now is that um, especially when in some form, um, so much of the media that's available for us to consume, if, you know, not only be full of anxiety, but then, you know, that are kind of even on like a biochemical level, the fact that then we're, <laughs> that we're constantly tethered to our technology. I mean, just any of it, even where you just, it just, I think a lot of people are seeing their need, their dependence and their need to like break away. But I feel like this is kind of real for a lot of people I'm talking to right now in some form. Like what if, you know, part of what you find is that even if you realize that you have been overstimulated and there has been too much uh, constant connectivity to media that's not good for you, or even, you know, social media, that might not be bad, but you're just, you know, kind of addicted, but you kind of realize that there is a bit of a void in terms of your own practices. You haven't had a, a routine of, of, uh, of, of prayer or meditation and now people go to the gym, can't go to the gym, like, et cetera. What about people who are like, see right now, sensing that need that they need to push back away from some things, but don't really have a map right now to know what to replace it with, or even where to begin to know how to try. Yeah. So I would start with, you know, checking in with yourself and identifying your needs and then just brainstorming, you know, get, get some paper and a pencil or get out your, your laptop and start typing out a list or a menu of options and then explore the ones that you can explore. So maybe, maybe it looks like listening to certain podcasts. Maybe it looks like going to the state park and hiking some trails. Um, you know, if you can't go to the gym, you can go to some outdoor spaces, uh, that are not populated. If you, uh, if you're used to, uh, you know, a lot of people are missing their their communities, uh, their faith communities, and their their small groups and things like that. You can still get together, uh, you know, digitally and that sort of thing. So, uh, finding replacements. You know, wherever there's a void, find find a replacement. Uh, that's one of the best ways to work with, uh, you know, certain addictions, and that's a certain way to to deal with certain losses. Um, is, um, you know, if there's a void there, you're going to be pretty, uh, pretty obsessed with the void. So you, you have to find the, the replacement or the new normal. Um, so again, you know, I think a lot of us, um, 
have been trained um, and, and probably at nobody's fault or anything like that. But a lot of us uh, have been programmed just through experience to look to external authority for just about everything. And this situation is putting a lot of us in the position to have to figure out how to cut out the middleman and Mm. deal with that directly within ourselves or directly within our family or directly within our relational network or directly between us and God, or in some way, you know, there's, you know, there's a, there's a certain, there's a basic tenet in the the field of social work that says that the client is the expert on their own life, Mm. you know? And so, um, I think we forget that a lot. We think that, you know, a doctor or a pastor or somebody's supposed to give us an answer or the answer. And the fact is there's usually more than one answer. And, um, there's, there's just so much of that we can do for ourselves. There's a, there's a concept that, um, you'll usually hear around somewhere like a nursing home and it's, um, it's called environmental press. And what it means is that when let's say someone's in a nursing home and they're, they've lost a lot of their skills to, to do their daily task um, independently. But if they can still brush their teeth and brush their hair and things like that, let them do that mm. and let them try to do a little bit more than they can do every day. And that's keep that growing edge going. Because if you don't have that, if the environment's not pressing on you enough to challenge you to do what you can do, plus a little bit more, you'll stagnate, you'll lose what skills you do have and you'll, you'll regress or you'll sort of disintegrate, you know, you'll, you'll lose skills. So I think we all have so many more internal resources than we realize because we've not had to tap into them because we're busy or we rely on other people to do it for us and things like that. And, uh, again, that's not to say that if you find yourself unable to do that, that you're somehow failing or weak or anything like that. It's just to say, there's so many opportunities right now for us to get to know ourselves and one another a lot better and from a deeper place. And um, I just really think if if there is a blessing that can come out of that for some of us, come out of this situation for some of us, it is that we'll, we'll be in a lot better relationship to ourselves when this is over if that is something we care about enough to dedicate to, commit to, and uh, be intentional about on a daily basis. That's so good, Tony. I mean, it's so so practical, so helpful. Um, it, you know, it certainly resonates with me. I mean, I think part of my sense of what's happening or I hope is happening with us is that, you know, I think we live with such an illusion of control most of the time that bad things aren't going to happen to us or that we're, you know, that somehow we're in charge of our own safety or that of people around us. And it seems like in a time like this, it's just, you know, really, it's just kind of a revelation of the real, like we're in some ways, we're seeing the world as it always is, that we're never really in charge, we're never in control. And uh, none of it, I mean, really, long before this happened, we, we, we really weren't as ever as secure as probably a lot of us thought, in terms of like, economic realities can shift so quickly health can shift so quickly. So in some ways, I don't know, it like it, it feels like all this is forcing us to grapple with what really is. Right. Yeah. I think it's also a, an opportunity to think about how much suffering there is in the world on, on any given day. You know, we're, we're thinking about this, the suffering related to this virus so much more now than we were when it was just isolated to China. Right. 
you know, it's, it's personal now. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that we miss as a society, and I see it a lot in our, you know, one of the things that's broken my heart the most about uh, Christianity as it's largely practiced um, in a lot of places or, or the, the way that you see it colluding with politics in some ways is uh, I, me, mine, uh, my concerns and my tribe and my, you know, wants and needs and desires are more important than anyone else's. You know, and so I think it is an opportunity to think about the fact that, I mean, it's this is literally a pandemic, <laughs> you know, it's literally affecting the entire known universe on some level. And so I, I think realizing that so many times, like when there's a death or a loss or uh, acute stress or anxiety or trauma, we feel so incredibly alone. And I think this is an opportunity to say, you know what? I feel everything that I feel right now, but I'm anything but alone in it. Mm. The whole world, there's something about knowing the whole world's in this together that actually helps me when I'm down. I'm not in this alone. You know, this is, um, you know, and there's people who are even more affected than I am. And so it's not to say, it's not the whole thing at the dinner table, like eat your food. There's starving children in Africa. I don't mean it like that. Uh, but more like a sense of solidarity with all of creation, a sense of solidarity with humanity. Um, because I mean, like if this can't show us that we're inter- not just interconnected, but interdependent, yes. uh, then we just don't want to see it because it is, it's just right there. I mean, there's a huge uh, spiritual gift in this and that if we'll let our consciousness open up to it, if we'll let our heart open up to it, uh, there's no way that we can miss that uh, we're interconnected and we're interdependent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As just as a species and really, you know, because humans are, are the most creative and destructive force on earth, all of creation, um, you know, is sort of at our mercy, you know, other animals, um, you know, uh, nature. Um, so, yeah. So, just realizing that, you know, we're, we're literally anything but alone. And we've, you know, we've, we live in a very individualistic time. You know, we come from like the, the enlightenment and the Western mindset and, you know, manifest destiny and the whole American dream is, is very individualistic. And there's, there's, um, there's an existential loneliness to that. Yeah. There's a huge, dis- the, the, that, I mean, it almost reminds me of, uh, psychologically, it reminds me of the, uh, the account Genesis of the fall, where there's, there's this sense of separation that they just can't get back to how it felt before the separation happened, you know? And I think an individualistic mindset, um, is so incredibly isolating and you'll see it a lot show up with people on their deathbed where they they come to this realization that they spent their entire life disconnected, even if they were sharing life with other people, that they didn't ever they weren't ever fully born in their lifetime. You know, and there's there's a huge there's a huge sense of grief and it's something that can't really be resolved. So I, I think it's, again, a time we could come to account uh or some 
moment of reckoning about what that looks like in our lives. And again, it's not about being bad or getting it wrong. It's about how can we, how can we live even more fully uh, because this happened? Yeah, that's so good because it's like instead of having to happen, because I do feel like it's sort of inevitable that everybody they live long enough will face some kind of a personal crisis that's going to bring these kind of things to bear. But the fact that now, like kind of collectively, that we're all living through something together that gives us an opportunity to reorient ourselves and to rethink our lives and maybe to be confronted with some of these really most critical questions in ways that in kind of normal, kind of in peacetime, we just aren't, does feel like there's just so much, there's so much opportunity there. Well, friend, I just, I can't thank you enough for this time today. And I feel like it's going to be healing for so many people. And it's for me, just in terms of giving us the resources to, um, to, to, to just kind of know psychologically, emotionally, a little have a sense of, of what to do with the moment we're in. How about for people? Because I know um, in terms of your practice, you're very much still doing what you're, you do. What about for people who might be interested in um, doing some counseling, doing some sessions online with you? What would be the best the best way for folks to connect with you or to explore that? You can find me at TonyCaldwell.com. Uh, my email address is there, but I'll, I'll give it to you here as well. Tony at TonyCaldwell.com. Um, yeah, that would be the best way. There's multiple ways to connect with me. I mean, you can Google my Tony Caldwell Nashville and they'll be, you'll find my practice there. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, please do reach out. I'd love to hear from, from, uh, your listeners and, uh, and connect. For sure. And I just can't recommend Tony enough. If you do need somebody to talk to, if you do need that kind of therapeutic presence in your life right now, somebody to guide you through some of these questions that are surfacing in you um tony i just couldn't think of a more faithful person or discerning person to to guide you through that so and thank you tony today for sharing your gift with with all of us um as always to those who are listening so appreciate in the midst of everything that's going on you carving out this space to to be here now and the ways that we're able to to connect so especially those of you who are patrons who are making this happen uh, sacrificially, uh, so humbling means more than I know how to tell you. But for all of you who do who like, share, review, who contact on social media in any way to try to encourage, means so much right now. So thank you guys for being with us. And once again, Tony, really an honor to have you back on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. Absolutely, friend. We will do it again soon. And you guys stay safe out there. And thank you for joining us for another edition of the Zeitcast. Mm-hmm.